If you will allow me just a few minutes for a bit of a preamble uh, to the sermon. I shared briefly uh, this past Sunday night a bit of my journey the past eight months. And while I don't intend to necessarily uh, re kind of revisit all of that, it does feel appropriate to at least make a few comments. And Lord willing, as the months go by, uh, I hope to have the opportunity to share more of that. It's nearly eight months now <clears throat> since I was last in the pulpit here on a Sunday morning. And it's been a season of testing, but also a time of learning and a time of rest. As I mentioned Sunday night, I marvel at the people that God brought into this season of life to help me navigate uh, what were for me uncharted waters. And I also marvel at how many of those people were in place before I knew I needed them in these particular ways. I knew I was in trouble nearly two years ago. With the help of numerous people, I was working to kind of restructure my life and priorities, but it simply was not to be without a major reset. And as I've uh, come to term it, I nearly crashed, burned, and disappeared. Or CBD, as some of my pastor friends call it. I want to thank you for your gracious support during this time. Your support in prayer, notes, and also your financial support that continued even though I was not actively serving. I needed a fresh encounter with the good news of Jesus. And that came from your generosity and grace. And I've come to believe that the folks that are here at Calvary do truly believe that the gospel is at the center of who we are. I know that uh, most of you did not know what to do with me. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't know what to do with me. But I just thank God that there were people around that said, yep, seen this before. And there were a couple that said, seen it many times. I'm talking to six, eight, ten pastors just like you right now. That was encouraging and also distressing. I also want to extend a special word of gratitude to the elders who picked up and carried on in an outstanding way. They have my highest respect. And also to the sabbatical team <clears throat> that continues to monitor my re-entry to help me find a new normal that, by the grace of God and with their support, won't simply be dropping back into an overcommitted, exhausting lifestyle, but rather one that models a healthier work and rest rhythm. This time away from ministry and a significant time away from business has allowed me some space to rebuild, beginning with the foundational relationship with God to working at building a healthier lifestyle, physically, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually. <clears throat> Has given me fresh opportunity to spend more time working on marriage and family, things that are very central before re-entry back into the world of business and ministry. <clears throat> and as I reflect on it, I say, 
It was the severe mercy of God. And while I am far from strong, uh, you likely will see my limp for a long time to come. I trust that God will still give me a season of fruitfulness, even though at present, uh, like Jeremiah, it may be fruitfulness from an incurable wound. It was a season of rest and my own reflection on the rest that God offers that brought me to this text for my first sermon back. And I'll be honest with you, as particularly this morning as I gave a bit of a summary of the sermon uh, in our prayer time, I, I realized that this sermon uh, ends up being very different than I thought the sermon would be when I selected this text. The text has a very pastoral tone to it. Jesus inviting those who are burdened and heavy laden to come and find a place of rest. But as I began to study the context here in the Gospel of Matthew and the broader biblical context of this particular call of Jesus, I realized that it's, it's very punchy. Uh, it's very straightforward and rather sharp in its critique of what so often we find as an alternative to the rest that Jesus offers. But I invite you on this journey, nevertheless, and if you will, turn to the, your Bibles in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. <clears throat> uh, we'll be reading <clears throat> verses 25 to 30 after a bit of introductory uh, comment here. And I'll also tell you, I told a few folks, either this sermon will be very short or very long, uh, both because I probably never got it finished. And I'm hoping it won't be very long. Sabbatical group told me it should not be. So we'll see. Um, you'd be surprised if it isn't, right? Some of you. Matthew chapter, 20, chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. We're breaking into a section of narrative that's tied very closely together by such phrases as, now when, as they went away, then he began, and the beginning of our text, at that time. And the very next section, then, in chapter 12, also begins with, at that time, Jesus went, and it was on the Sabbath. And given our topic of, of rest, it seems appropriate that we should probably jump into chapter 12 and try to unpack a little bit about this, the whole question of Sabbath. But we won't. But there's clearly a context here that matters. In chapter 10, Jesus is instructing the disciples about the mission on which he is sending them. Comes to chapter 11, Jesus is teaching and preaching in the cities himself. But his critique of that generation is scathing. So that our text today provides the counter to the critique of the generation he says to that generation of people, and he's addressing not just the Jewish people, probably not even particularly the common person who's listening, but most specifically the scribes and Pharisees, whom he references 
in this passage as the wise and understanding ones. He says to them, John the Baptist came. He didn't eat or drink. He was an ascetic. He lived a very frugal, simple, minimalist lifestyle. And you rejected him and his message. The Son of Man came, speaking now of himself. He came eating and drinking. He was called a wine-bibber and a glutton. He was freer in his celebration, freer in his associations. And probably the thing that's in the readers of Matthew's mind is his feasting in the house of Matthew, the tax collector. And he's doing so with other tax collectors and sinners. He said, so John the Baptist comes, he's an ascetic. You won't listen to him, you reject him. Jesus, the son of man comes, feasting, celebrating, hanging out with these people, and you reject him too. You've kind of made up your minds. You're the wise and understanding ones. You've got this all figured out. And you're not open to the message of either the prophetic John the Baptist nor of the Son of Man, Jesus. And then he speaks to three cities specifically, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And we know that these three towns are where Jesus spent most of his life and ministry. That's where he performed most of his miracles. These are Jewish towns that witnessed many of Jesus' miracles and heard his teaching, and they refused to believe. Jesus says, in fact, Tyre and Sidon, two of the prominent Roman cities in that area, had they seen the ministry of Jesus, they would have repented and believed. Had Sodom, which brought down the fire of God in judgment, had they seen Jesus' ministry and heard his teachings, Sodom would still be here, he said. But you, the people of God, the wise and understanding ones, the ones to whom the law of God has been given, you're not listening. You're not paying attention. So what is the issue? They were, quote, the people of God. They were people who had the word of God. They had the law of God. They were what God's word commends, wise and understanding ones. And yet they are actively rejecting and opposing Jesus. They claimed to love God. They were resolved to obey God. And they had become extremely careful in being sure that all the laws were not only being followed, but were also clearly unpacked and expanded to be sure the law itself would not be broken. To understand this, we must also include Jesus' critique of them found in Matthew 23, where he said, about these same scribes and Pharisees, they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. He's saying, scribes and Pharisees, that's who you are. And then he adds this line. These scribes and Pharisees are doing all their deeds to be seen by men. They're ordering their entire lives and watching the cues from other people trying to please people. Let me tell you, that is a heavy burden to be born. 
And now our text, Matthew 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Come to me, Jesus said, all who labor and are heavy laden. But, no, most of them won't come. At least not the wise and understanding ones. Who is it that's coming? Children. And he's not talking here about children who are small. He's talking about adults who have the posture, the attitude of a child. They aren't wise and understanding. They don't have it all figured out. And they're not in that defensive, self-protective posture of, I know, you listen to me, I've got this nailed down right. They're saying, Jesus, I don't understand. I don't know. And he says, come to me, just trust me. And enter into this journey called life as my disciple, as my follower. I am a gentle, meek, and humble teacher. And if you, like a child, will just walk with me, you will learn to know everything you actually need to know. And there's no hurry about it. There's no rush. There's no panic. There's no anxiety wrapped up into this that, I don't understand what's going on. I don't know how to think about this. Jesus says, just calm down. Trust me. Trust me. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust your ability to understand. Don't trust your capacity to be one of those wise and understanding ones so that you can get it right and then stand in judgment and authority over others who don't have a clue. No, he says, just trust me. Trust me. And come to me. And there's a remarkable argument that Jesus makes for why we ought to trust him rather than the, quote, wise and understanding ones. Okay, and let me, I'm going to use that phrase repeatedly, the wise and understanding ones, in a bit of a snarky way, almost. That's what Jesus is doing. Okay, however, throughout Scripture, Jesus commends wisdom and understanding. Proverbs is full of commendation for the wise, for those who understand, who seek after knowledge. What he's doing is critiquing a posture of, I know, 
and I get it, and so I stand in judgment over those who don't. And that's a very different posture than Jesus had because Jesus actually did know and actually did understand and actually did get it. And it's the difference between knowledge apart from love and a love that gives way to knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. These wise and understanding ones, and remember they're Jews. They're people to whom the law of God has been given. And they know the scriptures. They know them incredibly well. They're the, they're the people who have made their careers studying Scripture. And now they're telling people about the God of Scripture based on their study of the Scriptures. And Jesus is critiquing the God that they're putting on display. And his argument here is very simple. It is, I'm the Son of of the Father, God. God has given all things to me. God knows me. I know God. I know God perfectly. I know God intimately. And if anyone else is going to know God, including the wise and understanding ones, if they're going to know God, they will only know him if I, Jesus, disclose God to them. And I, Jesus, know this God. And when I reveal God to you, it is the way God really is. And it's obviously a very different presentation of God than what the wise and understanding ones are giving. Because the wise and understanding ones are rejecting this presentation of God that Jesus is putting on display. And there lies the problem. Who actually then is God? Is it the God that the scribes and Pharisees are putting on display or describing, or is it the God that is represented by Jesus? And this is, this is a question that we must continue to ask ourselves. When you gather here today to worship God, your understanding of who God is will deeply impact whether you can love this God you worship or not. Whether you will love this God you worship or not. Whether you will serve this God out of a deep love for God or out of a fear of God that is terror, not respect. Now, if you're not surrendered in faith to Jesus Christ, you ought to fear God. You ought to know the terror of the Lord. But once you come to Jesus, surrender to Jesus, the Father God is put on display to you as one who receives you, welcomes you, does have a yoke for you to bury, to bear, does have a work for you to do, but it's a yoke that's easy, it's a burden that's light. That is the God of whom Jesus speaks. There's a further context that is not apparent here in Scripture, but in the 2nd century B.C., 
there was a very well-known Jewish rabbi named Joshua ben Sira. And likely these words of ben Sira were well-known by the Jews of Jesus' day. And I want you to listen to this quote. Ben Sira was a wise rabbi, and he was calling people to consider wisdom. So it has echoes of the Old Testament through it, has echoes of Proverbs. But these were the words of Ben Sira. Draw near to me, you who are uneducated. Why do you delay in these matters when your souls thirst so much? Place your neck under the yoke and let your soul accept training. She is near if you wish to find her. Witness with your own eyes that I have labored little, yet have found much rest for myself. And Jesus, of course, takes that basic concept and says, you've been seeking wisdom. You've been seeking understanding. Come to me. I am wisdom. That's exactly what Jesus said at the end of Matthew chapter 7. If you want to be a wise man, listen to my teachings and obey them. Because, as the Apostle Paul says, it's Jesus who has become to us wisdom. So the call of wisdom throughout the Old Testament is ultimately the call of Jesus himself. And philosophers throughout history have been searching for wisdom. And you may have never read a, philosoph- a, f- a textbook on philosophy. You may have no idea what the term even means. You may be completely uneducated formally in the things and wisdom of this world. You may not even know a lot of scripture. But if you've heard the call of Jesus say to you, come to me with your burden, with the heaviness of your labor, you have found a place of rest in wisdom. And all the wisdom of the universe is present in that relationship, and he will give it to you as you need it. Now, suppose you really believe that, that trusting Jesus is enough to rest. And think with me for a moment where the stresses and pressures of your life are right now. When you wake up at night, where does your mind go? When you feel the knot in your stomach, what is it that's creating that knot in the stomach? When you look into the future and fear begins to rise rather than hope and anticipation, what is it about the future that nurtures that fear? That keeps you from resting? What is it that presses you into this labor of anxious toil? Jesus says to you in those very specific spots, you come to me. You come to me with that heavy weight that is impossible to carry, with that burden that you just can't unload. Come to me, and I'm going to give you rest. And this rest, we have to note, 
is not the absence of responsibility. It's not some sort of welfare program that allows you to sit 70 hours on the front porch drinking iced tea and watching the cars go by. There's work to be done, folks. It's tedious. It's heavy. But it's a work that begins to flow from a place of rest rather than a work that you anticipate. If you get the work done well, you can finally someday rest. Where do these, where does this unmanageable labor, where does this heavy burden that cannot be borne come from? And very quickly, I think there are at least four facets. There's a physical component, there's a spiritual component, there's an intellectual component, and there's an emotional component. It's not comprehensive, but it's representative. Jesus wants you to have physical rest. And we could look at the passage that was read today from Exodus. Genesis chapter 1, God worked six days. And God rested for a reason that none of us will ever rest. God rested because he was finished. And if you wait to rest until you're finished, are you going to burn out? But the reason we can rest, even though we're not finished, is because God keeps going. Okay, and that's a big deal for a pastor. Because pastor's work is never done. I mean, absolutely never finished. There's always more, so much more. That's of critical, eternal importance to be done. But until a pastor, myself included, believes that God works, God will continue to work, God is building his church through his son Jesus, you don't have to be on top of it, You don't have to manage it all. That's Jesus' job. It's okay to go to bed, to lie down, and sleep. God will keep doing what God needs to do. I'm not God. I can sleep. Okay, so for the month of June, I slept 14, sometimes 16, 18 hours a day or a night. I just slept. It wasn't all sweet. (laughs) But I'm not fixed on that front. To know, to bear the yoke of Jesus, is to know what is yours to accomplish and to take all the rest and have a place where you can just entrust it to Jesus and go to sleep. The same is true for Sabbath. You know, if there's one place that pastors are probably most hypocritical, it is in acknowledging their humanity in a Sabbath. You may not know it, but Sunday for a pastor is the hardest day of the week. Absolutely fatiguing. We need a Sabbath. And I had only begun kind of carving one out. And for some of you, I mean, you have jobs that are seven-day-a-week jobs. Jesus loves you and says, you just can't do that. It's not good for you. Do your work in six days and find a work-rest rhythm that gives you a true Sabbath. It's God's gift for you. 
You don't have to do it for God. God did it for you. But you see, we have this God syndrome and that we have to, we have got got to manage this stuff seven days a week. And we can't let it go and rest. And Jesus, again, chapter 12, I mean, he, he hammers it. And if I can just toss this, I've got too much stuff here to talk about, okay? Full to the brim. One of the books I read was by a rabbi who just died about a year and a half ago, Jacob Neusner. He's not a Christian. Loves the Old Testament scriptures. Devout Jew. And the book is entitled, A Rabbi Talks with Jesus. And he has a conversation with Jesus based on the Gospels. And he says at the end of the book, here's why I cannot be a Christian. Here's why I cannot accept Jesus as the Messiah. And when it comes to the Sabbath, he says, here's the problem. When you read all the passages, Jesus interacting with the Sabbath, what does Jesus do? Jesus sets himself up as an authority over the Sabbath. Incredibly preposterous, he says, because God wrote the Sabbath into the law. And who Messes with the law. Nobody can mess with the law except God himself. And we as Christians smile and say, well, yeah, that's right. (laughs) All things the Father gave to the Son, that includes the law. And Jesus says, really, the law and the prophets were given, include the Sabbath for your well-being. Actually, that Sabbath is me. I am the Sabbath. And Neusner basically says that. Jesus sets himself up as the culmination of the Sabbath. Well, actually he is. That's why he said, you're tired, you're weary. Come to me and you will find rest. You'll find your Sabbath in Jesus. And you'll also find your permission to take an actual day of non-work, restorative, refreshing Sleep, reading, hiking, whatever it is that refreshes you, whether that day is also the day you set aside to worship or not, you need the day of rest. You're a human, and God gives it to you. What a fool not to take it. Okay, that was me. Jesus gives it to you. Take it. Spiritual rest is of absolute and essential part. We carry with us a burden of guilt and shame. There's no place of release apart from the work of Jesus. And I want you to just to note some one 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 thing here. God worked for six days, made the world. On the seventh day, he rested. And he did that because he said, I'm finished. It's all very good. I want you to consider the fact that the seventh day was actually man's first day on earth. I think it plays into kind of how this all works out finally in the Christian world. The first day man was on earth, he didn't have to do six days of labor. He spent the day off with God. Day seven was man's first day. He's created the sixth. God is resting. I can't imagine God not hanging out with his new creatures. We're not told that explicitly. But we do know God walked in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. I'm thinking that's what happened on day seven. God is walking with Adam and Eve, preparing them 
for the next six days of work. We're called to work from a place of rest, not toward a place of rest. Now, there's just a funny little twist to that. You get to Hebrews. The work that we are called to do does lead to a final rest. So we're also working toward a rest. But as creatures of God, we begin from a place of rest. And that's the very nature of God's grace to us. And Jesus is making it abundantly clear. That's who God is. God is not this vicious taskmaster who's hovering over you, trying to wring every ounce of resource out of you that he can get. No, God is inviting you to come to him for rest. And from that place of rest, he will give you a work to do. He will give you a responsibility to carry, a task to accomplish. He's going to share it with you through his son, Jesus, in this shared yoke. And then you will go to work. The same is true for our intellectual and emotional. You know, and some of us don't hardly have gauges for these things. And it's one of the things I've been working on is trying to kind of come to a self-awareness. Oh, where, where am I emotionally? Is there, is there reserve? Am I rested emotionally? Or am I wrung out and absolutely thin? Is there reservoir? Is there intellectual capacity? Has my mind had enough rest to enter the strenuous work of thinking and studying? Because just like the world of, of the physical, you know that you can't just work 80, 100 hours a week in strenuous physical labor. The body has to rest. You know that you can't just go to the gym and work out at maximum potential for 10 hours straight and go back the next day and do it again. No, there's a work-rest pattern that is healthy. So too for our minds, for our emotions. Some of us didn't hardly know we had emotions because we had denied their existence and not listened to their voice. But our relationship with Jesus is the foundation for rest and health here as well. And it's in prayer with Jesus that we must learn to express the deepest delights and sorrows of our soul. It's there where we tell him about our anger, our fear, our sorrow, our sadness, our bewilderment at life, our amazement, where we tell him about the betrayals that we've suffered or the love we've received. You know, you can't always tell other people how you feel. You do know that, right? Okay, it's not safe. Okay, I'm telling you. You can tell Jesus. It's safe. But if you can't tell anyone, and you don't tell anyone, you're going to die. Learn to know what you feel and talk to Jesus about it. And the Psalms will help you because it's all there. Everything you will ever experience is there. And when you talk, talk it over, when you talk it over with Jesus, and let me just tell you folks, you do know Jesus is alive and is present and you can talk to him. 
Sometimes our Christianity gets so far removed from that fundamental principle. And it's all a set of ideas, a set of ideologies, a set of theologies, a set of cultural practices and behaviors and external sorts of things. I want you to know today, at the very center of all this, is the God-man Jesus, who has sent an invitation to you personally to sit down, to trust him, to give yourself up to him. He's okay with that conversation. And when you find that conversation, you'll know there is a yoke, but he is a meek, gentle, humble listener and teacher. And Jesus, who knows God, says, that's who God is. That's who God is. From this place of rest, many of our anxieties and fears fade away. Others find their proper place, guiding us, keeping us alert, but not dominating our lives in draining ways. Do you know this Jesus? Do you believe that this Jesus represents who God really is? And he says, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Life has stress. Life has labor, and it has a burden to be carried. And Jesus is offering not an escape from these, but rather partnership in wisdom. Come to me, he says, you need rest, and I will give it to you, along with the tasks and burdens that are manageable. I'm a gentle and compassionate king, and you, know, you need to know that's the kind of king God is. I know him well. I know him well. Would you bow your heads for prayer, please? Father, you who have searched us and tried us, you who know us more intimately than we know ourselves. You know the fears, anxieties, the raging passions that seem to roll out of control, the lusts, the sins, the guilt, the shame that's present in each heart in this room. Lord, you know it better than anyone in this room knows it about themselves and most certainly knows it about anyone else. You know it, Lord. And from all those weights and from all that weariness, the invitation of Jesus is going out even now when he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. In your grace, Lord, may people respond to that invitation to know the rest of Jesus. To know the rest of Jesus as coming from the God who is salvaging us from all our anxious toil 
and giving us a work that advances the kingdom of Christ to the glory of your son, Jesus. Would you bring that rest to our hearts individually? Would you bring that rest to us corporately? So that the work we do would be effective for the kingdom of Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. And if you would, please stand for the benediction.